Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. This is one of my favorite encounters with Jesus, one of my favorite accounts of his ministry during his time on earth. So but what we're gonna do, I'm gonna kind of take like a weird turn at the end. I mean, I shouldn't call it weird, but we need to start by being really faithful to study this story. But then there was just something that the Lord put on my heart that's not an exact, like out of this teaching thing. So I'm gonna share that with you, but let's just start by opening up the scripture and studying what beauty there is in the nuance of these encounters that we just don't wanna miss. What we have here is we have two stories uh, that Jay just read for us, two situations that intertwine and kind of weave together, overlap in the same space. And it's interesting to note that three of the four gospel accounts include this moment with amazing, like really precise similarity, which doesn't always happen. But that means that this encounter was that striking and that precise to the three people who decided to share it in their gospel gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. And these are interesting because not only because they're in the same space of time, but the way that they happen, they emphasize, they draw out things. They highlight points both of similarity and points of difference, both of which should be striking, are striking. And so what we're going to do is we're going to study those and we're going to see how these stories like live together in a really beautiful way. An example, you might notice that the woman hemorrhaged for the same length of time as the entirety of the little girl's life. So there's this feeling of like life and death in this same length that we're meant to see from these two women, uh, women and girl, right? And that's interesting. So the life which Jesus restores to the 12-year-old child is paralleled to the life he gives back to the woman, from whom the strength has been draining away for 12 years, the entirety of the girl's life. So that's really beautiful. We also notice right from the start the nature of the impurities that are listed. And this is important. So we've got two things going on culturally marked impurities. Number one is hemorrhaging. That was one. And second, death, for sure. Like on the cusp of death, that was impurity. And it's important before we start to understand that touching either of these things would lead to ritual defilement. Now, we can sit here and be like, that's a little bit fussy. But I think we maybe would have said that in 2019. Not so much now. We get it a little bit more now. But it's important. Soap, was not invented until the Middle Ages. Like the laws of impurity really were hygiene-related, safety, important things that were part of this culture. And so these public taboos were built off of, hey, be safe, be hygienic, but they had become like an art form for the people to have this purity. And so it was, um, it was just important to know that these had depth of cultural importance, but also just like true hygiene. Two of the top cultural impurities would have been touching blood or death, a corpse, right? These are top of the list. And so we see those exaggerated in, like to have both in one story was an exaggerated uh, emphasis. So with the intertwining that we see, it adds richness and we're meant to see are drawn similarities. So we're gonna literally just go through and follow these two plot lines, and we're gonna study the things that maybe at first reading, we may not see that there's depth of riches here. So we've got two main character, 
characters or, or people whose, follow, whose story we're following. Jairus is the first one. Here's what we know. He's a local synagogue leader. He walks up to Jesus and fell at his feet. Think about the posture from a leader who was well known, right? He falls at the feet pleading to come to his house to help his daughter who's at the point of death. Chapter 841. That's our first one, Jairus. We know now he has a love of daughter who's willing to do this bold move. Second, we have an unnamed woman According to 843, chapter 8, verse 43, who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. This is most likely some kind of uterine bleeding that's been happening to this woman for 12, think of a 12-year-old right now, like for that long, she has had this situation going on. According to Leviticus 15, 19 to 33, those purity laws I was saying, this would have made the woman unclean. She would have been prevented from worshiping in community, prevented from being around other people in community, um, just everyday activities for 12 years. So these are our two characters. We need to know those things about them. So let's look at a, first at a similarity between the two. The two are desperate, you guys. They have come to the end of any other ability. Jairus says his daughter is at the point of death. He risks what others might think of him. Remember, at this point, Jesus is causing a lot of question marks, a lot of excitement, and a lot of doubt. And Jairus is like, I'm going there. And I'm going to kneel down. That posture, again, is important. He would have seen by his community, we know there's a crowd. Like, he's not privately walking up and, like, instant messaging, Psst, can you help me? Can you come over? Like, he's going in the crowd and saying, in faith, can you help me? Major, just expression of love for a daughter. So he's desperate. The woman is clearly desperate, suffered for 12 years. Mark's account of the same story tells us a little bit more. She suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had and was no better but rather grew worse, Mark 5, 26. So not only is she outside of community, but the treatments for this kind of thing were often superstitious, painful, costly, because people didn't have the same medical knowledge, right? They would be trying all this. She'd come to the end of the options. So she'd fought physician, sought physician's advice. They gave her one thing after another. So after her resources dried up, probably the doctors had just said, like, that's it. Like, you're incurable. That's the end. So she has... Nothing. She hears about Jesus. She hopes that this could maybe be something. And she has been in hiding so long. We see that in her posture of how she even approaches in desperation. She couldn't go up. She was embarrassed and needed a private cure. This was a private thing. And she'd been ostracized from community. If I could just touch his garment, I'd be made well. So both are desperate. They're both beyond the help of human aid at this point. And they will lay aside risk to seek help potentially from Jesus. So that's a big similarity between these two individuals. But a difference that we also see right away is their circumstances and thus their approach to Jesus. Jairus, he was a male leader. We knew that. Unlike the woman, his name is preserved. That means he's known. He's known, and each of the gospel accounts name him. He's a known person. He must be respected. He approaches Jesus. We know there's a crowd, and he's able to walk up and approach Jesus. What does that mean? The community is all like, yeah, for sure these guys should be talking. That makes sense to me. They make way where there's jostling and pressure in other places. So that tells us something that he had no problem walking up to this crowd that later we're, said, we're told almost is crushing Jesus in verse 42. Make room. Of course that makes sense. 
The woman, on the other hand, she's not even named. She's breaking custom to even be in this full of a crowd, you guys. Think about it. That is already breaking a custom. She should probably not be that close to people. We don't know, but we're pretty likely that this has impacted marriage, childbearing, certainly. Does she have an advocate for her? No. She doesn't have anybody advocating for her. So we know some things about her. She approaches discreetly from behind and secretly reaches out to touch the tip of the hem of Jesus' garment. So maybe it was because she's female. Maybe it's because she was unclean. Maybe it's because she's embarrassed because it's a female issue that one would not talk about publicly. Maybe she was afraid of getting in trouble by the crowd for even being there. I'm guessing all of it but she comes with an approach that reflects her delicate situation. So there's nothing that indicates to us if culturally it would be thought that uh, the touch, the unclean touch would go through a garment. We have no proof of that. I actually think it's lovely. I hadn't thought of it until studying this time around, one of my favorite passages, but she's not so desperate. She still has such respect. She's not desperate like, I'm gonna catch him and see if his cleanness undoes my uncleanness. She touches his garment. She doesn't want to defile him. She comes up quietly and thinks, I'll just, maybe if I just touch his garment, because that won't go to him. But in their difference, they are both given full healing that they have sought. Full and complete healing. Jesus doesn't adjust his care, his compassion, his healing, his restoration, based on their very different circumstances. No favorites. No favorites from Jesus. Male, female, with means, without means, ritually clean, just as Jairus still was at this point, right? The uncleanliness is coming later, like, but it doesn't matter. Religious, well-regarded, or outside of establishment, no matter, right? We see Jesus treating them the same. Now, we note that uh, in Mark 5.33, we get this verse in the same story that I think is really telling Mark accounts for this. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. Now, in the first reading, it looks like it's the whole truth, like confessing what she just did. But we know that she actually told her whole truth. The money spent, the physicians sought, the amount of time, the destitution. Because how else could three different gospel writers have a count of her whole truth unless she stopped and told Jesus the whole truth, her whole truth, not just a confession. I did it. I touched your robe. But she had to have told her story. And he stopped and listened, and three different gospel writers have accounts of the full bit. And that would have taken some time. And Jesus didn't rush it. He heard her whole truth. How did Jairus feel during that wait? We're going to get back to that. Another similarity, in addition to the healing, Jesus commends both of them explicitly, meaning like with exact words, he says, I commend you for your faith in different ways. This life-restoring power of Jesus is being clearly exercised in response to the faith of both of these individuals. To the woman, he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace, verse 48. Jesus is making sure that there's no room for the misunderstanding that he's wearing a magical robe. It's not a magical garment. It was your faith that did this healing. You approached me at risk to yourself because you believed that even touching my garment could cure you. Thus, you believed in the miraculous power of the kingdom of God and you reached out and grabbed it. 
in faith. That is what has made you well. And to Jairus, he says, we're told he approaches Jesus in faith, risking his reputation. And as they approach then the house, after they've been told the daughter is dead, the friends say, don't bother anymore. It's too late. And Jesus reassures him, don't be afraid. Just believe she'll be healed. Verse 50, don't hesitate because of the voices of your friends. Continue with the belief you demonstrated when I entered into your town. Don't lose that. And Jairus continues without question. He doesn't say, well, are you sure we should still go? Are you sure it's not too late? He doesn't. He just just goes and continues to follow even as his friends are laughing at him. He keeps going. They continue to the bedroom where Jairus witnesses the miraculous healing of his daughter. And another similarity, Jesus is using both opportunities to explicitly teach faith over fear. Now, here's one of the things that happens. I love the way we open up the scripture and we look at a passage and we study it, but sometimes we can lose what's happening on like both ends, like the book ends, not even book ends, like on the books next door, right? And so like just previously, we had a teaching where there was a storm, kind of a famous story. Jesus is taking a nap. A big storm comes up. His disciples are filled with trembling and fear. And they're like, don't you even care? Jesus, wake up, right? And then we know that uh, Jesus seems to be teaching here. The disciples' faith was blocked by the fear. There's this dichotomy of faith and fear highlighted in the story of the storm where we've just heard, master, we're going to drown. That's the fear. And Jesus responds by saying, where is your faith? That's just happened. So faith and fear have just been showed together. So now Jesus says to Jairus, do not fear, only believe. So fear and faith is a theme that's just been growing. Keep going. Don't let your fear block your faith. You've already had it. Don't give up. To the woman who's fearful with trembling right when she's caught, she has a don't see me plan. That's how fearful she is. I'm going to just do this without anyone being seeing me. She falls with trembling. That's the fear. And he says, daughter, your faith healed you. Go in peace. No need to fall in fear. Go in peace means stand. Walk with dignity. You can do that. You don't have to fall in fear. Stand and go with dignity. Your faith has won over the fear that you had. And you've been healed, right? So, daughter, your faith has healed you. So there, and we see both that there's an explicit teaching that's been growing. The disciples just had fear that got in the way of their faith. And now these two have faith that is conquering fear and bringing restoration. So we see that thematically as we go. And I love this too, what we want to see. Both of these stories are powerfully miraculous, you guys. At 12 years of an incurable hemorrhaging, death itself, I mean, there's clearly powerful, miraculous work going on, but they're incredibly tender. To the woman, Jesus says, daughter. It is the only place in Luke's account that Jesus calls a woman that tender, familiar name, daughter. No shame in approach. Let me hear your whole truth. Tender, relational, relational. And by the way, you guys, this restores her not only physically, but it restores her into the community of God. This is so tender. To the little girl, mom and dad are there too, right? Jesus holds her hand, takes her hand and says, my child. How tender is that? So personal. And note this with both of them, there's touch. 
It's also very tender. Uh, N.T. Wright says this, Jesus shares the pollution of sickness and death, but with the power of his own love, and it is love above all that shines through in these stories. And it turns that pollution into wholeness and hope. That's the full restoration with the tenderness of touch. There's beauty in like the miraculous power of a word, yes, but these stories, they mirror tenderness in restoration that comes from Jesus. And I love this, if we look at another similarity, both of these individuals, they actively pursued that miraculous. They went after it. They wanted to believe in it. They conquered their fears and went toward it in faith. So was it the faith or Jesus that did the healing? It's the power of God through Jesus. N.T. Wright, again, explains it this way, which I think is really good because it can be really hard, right? If healing doesn't come and we read this story, you might think, like, does that mean my faith is broken? Like, no, it doesn't mean that. Faith is the, um, faith, though itself powerless, is the channel through which Jesus' power can work. It's the power of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, that did the healing. And faith is, the, is like the channel that opens up the space to be like, yes, I'm seeking after the miraculous. So we cannot have Jesus' ministry be belittled into just a supernatural, urgent care clinic. There's something deeper going on. The ministry was to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God that was being ushered in, which means healing and restoration on all levels, spiritual, physical, uh, emotional, into community, all of that. So it's important that we see the broader progression of Jesus' teaching here, that fear versus faith from the storm now to here, because what we have now is we look to the other side of the books to follow, the followers who've just been reprimanded for their lack of faith in the boat, right? Those followers are now witnessing these powerful, tender encounters. They're there seeing it, and they're watching this radical, radical healing ability of Jesus, and they witness it. And now, the next verse, their faith has been stirred, and chapter 9 starts out with the recording of Jesus calling together his 12 disciples, and he gave them power and authority to cast out all demons and to heal all diseases. He takes this. Now you've seen it. You were fearful. We've stirred your faith. Now go. Take that. I give you all authority to do these same things. And then a chapter later, he does the same thing now with 72 followers. Go out, do the same, proclaim the good news, and demonstrate healing. Luke 10, the Lord now chose 72 other disciples and sent them ahead in pairs to all the towns and places he planned to visit. Jumping to verse 8, if you enter a town and it welcomes you, eat whatever set before you, heal the sick demonstration and tell them proclamation the kingdom of God is near you now so we see here that this is a part of a story that's causing a trajectory of demonstration that's to be spread outward beyond Jesus the power of God designed to move outward to spread restoration and hope and so it cannot be limited to Jesus or his robe certainly not just his robe right? This is a power moving outward, the spirit moving to the t Jesus, then the 12 and 72. And like we celebrated last week at Pentecost to all believers now, this power is moving, growing momentum. This is what this passage is telling us. Restoration and proclamation. This message is talking about fear uh, being conquered by faith. That's what we're learning about here. It's teaching us with visual demonstrations the powerful healing of Jesus and how this is gaining momentum. We study this, 
We celebrate it. We lo- I love, I hope you love this story. I love this story. There's so much richness and power. But it strikes me today that I had this observation. If you guys have been around here, you know, sometimes this happens. Like I had to notice something and I feel like I just, I want to share it with you. It might feel like a bit of a turn, but that's okay. I'm going to just call this creative pastoral license to take the text and say like, I just, I noticed something for myself this week beyond just the celebrating of, yes, I want a faith that conquers my fears. Yes, I want to expect to participate with the miraculous. But I had a pretty humbling moment when I looked at Jairus this week and I looked at myself and how our responses were to unexpected interruptions. Here's Jairus, he's a well-known person who has just gotten on his knees and begged. That's a big move already. In front of all the neighbors, you've humbled yourself. You're pushing through crowds, you're up against the clock, It's the 11th hour. You've tried everything else. Your daughter is dying and your path is interrupted. We just studied the story. I won't belabor it. And the whole truth, you guys, that takes a while, especially for this woman. I don't imagine that Jesus called her out and she was like, I am so glad you asked. Let me tell you what's been going on for 12 years. Like, that's not the posture of this woman. He must have had to draw out that story in the same loving tenderness and questions that we hear him draw out stories in so many other places. But don't forget, Jairus is standing there the whole time. She told her whole truth, and it was at his expense of his agenda, I should say. You guys, he didn't seem to be anxious at all. Not one of these three gospel accounts was like, and he was bugged, and here's another lesson about being patient while Jesus is doing big stuff. Like, none of them, none of them say anything like that. No grumpiness recorded in any of the gospels. His faith seemed to include trust in Jesus's timeline to the point of even still going without question after his daughter's been reported dead. He doesn't seem to be like, I don't, I don't think we need to go anywhere. Like nothing. He's just like, I will go with you, Jesus. Look at that patience. I am not that patient when my plans are interrupted. So this is the thing I noticed this week. I mean, it's not the first time I've noticed that I struggle with patience. But this week I was really convicted because here's what I was thinking. And this may not be true of all of you. So I was thinking about this. Like, this is not true of my husband, Andy. He's like 100% more patient than I am, or at least like 89% more patient than I am. And so like for some of you, if you see this, like this might be you. For others... This group of us, we need you to help us call this out. All that stuff we've been talking about, about being the church together. If we want Holy Spirit moments, we need the people who don't struggle with this to tell us when we're doing this thing I'm about to say. Okay, here is what I realized. My impatience with plans being interrupted. I have a time scarcity mentality. I do. I have a scarcity mentality. Yet, I have a really warped economy of interruptibility. I'm gonna tell you what I mean by that. I was noticing this week, what do I allow to interrupt me? If I have a time scarcity mentality, what do I not only allow to interrupt me, what do I invite to interrupt me all the time? Apps that push notify me, and I stop what I'm doing to look. Pings that tell me somebody just interacted with something on social media. Why do I allow this? I sign up for stores to tell me urgently when they're having a discount. I don't, why do I need to do that? That all of these 
get the same priority as like a real note from a real live friend who I know and care about, right? They all have the same ability to interrupt me. I don't know what happens, you guys. If you know how to undo this, my new phone transcribes spam voicemails to text. So now I have to address them twice, and I don't know how to undo that. I go, what am I allowing to happen? I accept that my watch buzzes my wrist when it's time to stand up. Do you guys have that? Like, it does that. I don't even know how to stop it. We have this cultural belief somehow that I don't want to unexpectedly bother you. Why do we think that? Why? What is our economy of interruptibility? That doesn't make sense to me. It's nonsense. I don't feel like you're a bother if you call me, but we project somehow. Like, if I call you, I'm a bother. So we suffer this time scarcity and we permit the strangest things, full access to interrupt us all the time. And we believe this of each other somehow. I mean, at least I hear it. We say it. I don't want to be an interruption, but I've allowed a million interruptions a day. What, what is going on with our economy of interruptibility? And here's what I was looking at as I was admiring Jairus for just trusting Jesus, just trusting Jesus. And I was looking, what is he seeing? What is Jairus seeing when he's looking at Jesus that allows him not to have a time scarcity mentality? He's got the most time scarcity situation more so than I've ever experienced in my life. He's living it. His beloved daughter is almost dead. Actual reason for time scarcity that I just like seem to accept is a lie all the time. His was true. And yet, something was going on with Jesus that Jairus didn't feel rushed. He saw a different economy of time and he trusted it. He trusted it. And I think that what he saw, Jesus was walking through all of life with holy interruptibility. Are we allowing ourselves to be interrupted by all the wrong things? As a culture, we're giving off the impression that we're bothered when it's actually like a personal encounter. That, okay, the first thing, I hear it, I say it, and I've heard other people say it. An unscheduled phone call. What's the first thing you say? I'm sorry to bother you. Why do we say that? Why, like if you're bothering, if I can't get the phone, I just won't pick it up. But the first thing we say is we identify this interruption, this voice to voice must be a bother. This one must be a bother to you. We equate interruption with bother. I want to say one thing. I'm going to speak on behalf of Sam too. You don't know that I'm about to say this. But I was thinking about this because people say that they call, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. I'm so sorry about, you guys, if you think that calling a pastor is an interruption, that'd be like saying to the dentist, I'm super sorry that I asked you to check my teeth today. This is like literally what pastors do. We walk through life together. Like I long for the text, for the phone call to talk through what's going on. So that's the first thing I need to debunk that first of all, but all of us, I think, all of us long for the relational side of doing this life thing together. All of us are hungry for the moments when God is at work in a relational encounter. And I've said this before in the city, it's hard to find moments of intersection, right? Because we don't all live in the same little town. And so it's, it's hard. So how do we stay attentive to real true relational moments when God shows up and acts in powerful ways? with healing, with a compassion, with a word of wisdom that often comes through our connections with one another, right? These things, the way that God moves is often through relational encounters, yet the world says an interruption is a bother. Not so when it's a relational 
interruption. So I thought about this this week, and you're going to have to keep on giving me a little pastoral creative license because this is not what this passage is about, but I thought about this. Okay, there's this moment when Elijah and the Lord are having a conversation in 1 Kings 19. It might sound familiar. The Lord said to Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Now, this story, real brief, side sermon is about the beauty of knowing that sometimes God is going to act in different ways, different than God has acted before. That's a side sermon. Now I'm going to misuse this a little creatively for my intentions today. This, I thought of this story, right? My phone pinged, but the Lord was not in the Facebook notification. My watch buzzed, but the Lord was not in the step tracking update. My email banner flashed, but the Lord was not in the Nike sale. You guys, it's silly, but it's true. Where are we not able to hear the still small voice of the Lord because we are letting everything else interrupt us, and yet somehow we feel too out of time, or we assume someone else is too out of time, to have a holy interruption where God is going to show up in still small ways because we actually remember that reaching out and interrupting interrupting each other is the definition of doing life together. And that's the moment when God even has the ability to speak into what's happening. Let us be attentive and responsive to the interruptions that foster spaces like that. And let us be bold enough to interrupt others because really you guys we're all hungry for a way better interruption than the five million we're getting every day we need to be able to see where the spirit comes in and through relationship with each other with neighbors with interrupted moments with a stranger who's in need for something When we're in tune to the Holy Spirit, we are not just sitting there seeking out the constant input of outside noise. When we can block some of that out, we have the chance of actually hearing where the Holy Spirit might be speaking to us or on behalf of somebody else in our midst for kingdom purposes. You guys, this was what I was thinking about when I was admiring Jairus this week because I was failing in a certain moment that I'll tell you another time, I'm not ashamed, but I was like, Come on, you know, and it wasn't this moment. And I needed, I needed this story this week. I want holy interruptibility. You guys can hold me to that. I want holy interruptibility. And I want to feel committed to fighting the noise so that I can hear the still, small voice. I want to be a community that says, yeah, we'll help each other do that along the way. Amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you for conviction. I thank you for conviction that comes, Holy Spirit, through um, just reading a story and being able to see the heart of Jesus and being willing to look at our own hearts and say, um, oh, I, I want to be formed into more. And so I thank you for that in my own life. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will help us to have the discernment to know when an interruption is you knocking 
into a moment and saying, listen, listen to my voice. I am here in this moment, and there's a kingdom sweetness that you don't want to miss through all the other noise. So God, we pray that you will form us, you will shape us, you will sharpen us to have ears that hear that voice through all the other noise. We know that we want to join in the kingdom work that you are bringing about in our city. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.